This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, where we uncover the truth, one guest at a time. For those who dare to seek, Veritas is the place where they shall find. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you are keeping Veritas alive. Tonight's special guest is someone who works very close with Cliff High. Together, they create great synergy. From UrbanSurvival.com, we welcome for the first time on Veritas, George Yor, who will talk exactly about that, urban survival, during these dire times. George will be with us shortly. To listen to the complete version of this and all our past and future shows, become a member. You will receive immediate access to all our inventory of shows, that's 85 to date, and a few bonus interviews, the Manticore Forum and the Veritas Chatroom. Just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe and take Veritas with you. And remember, the metal-cased 8GB USB drive containing all of Season 1 in CD audio quality 
and a few bonuses for you is now for sale. For more information, visit the Veritas store. And news about the Gulf of Mexico oil disaster don't stop coming. I will be conducting another interview with James Fox very soon. But today, I get an email from James. If you continue to say that the suspension of the First Amendment rights is an exaggeration, even the mainstream media now reports this. BP and the administration replace First Amendment with $40,000 fine and a Class D felony to anyone who comes close to less than 65 feet away from vessels or personnel over water or inland. And the press is not exempt either, so freedom of speech and freedom of the press have been suspended. And this is what James Fox reported today. Quote, I spent all day waiting for a dumpster full of tar balls and oil to be picked up. Just as the sun was setting, the truck arrived. We followed and found where the toxic sludge was being taken, only to be contained and questioned by the police. Police guarding a waste management site? He told me to turn off the camera and took my ID and told me to leave and not come back. I'll post videos soon. Weird stuff going on, unquote. Definitely weird stuff going on. So stay tuned for another revealing interview with James Fox coming soon. He also has information of lab results of water and some of this oil. It's not good, but we have to tell you. And I'm sure many of you want to know how my trip to the East SETI conference at James Gilliland's ranch went. And although I can only summarize due to time limitations, let me start by saying it was fantastic. I left 110 degree weather in the desert to overlook Mount Adams full of snow. The setting, the scenery, is absolutely stunning. The drive from Portland, Oregon to Trout Lake, Washington is just beautiful. And it's what you can expect in a movie. There were over 300 people there, all in the same wavelength of positive intent, love and compassion for one another. No wonder it's hard to leave that place. And the lineup of guests, the speakers, was as great as you can expect. I arrived there on Thursday and got acquainted with the ranch. On Thursday, there were speakers throughout the day. At night, it was skywatch time. It was overcast the first night, the beginning of the evening. People were using infrared goggles and cameras, and we were watching all sorts of things flying around. I sat down on my chair and started wishing to see something unquestionable, something that I could see with my naked eye and that I could say for the first time I saw a UFO. Not even a few minutes after that thought, in the distance, I saw a bright object approaching. It was definitely not an airplane. It slowed down as it was flying over us, then it powered up and got even brighter, almost as if saying, we can see you, now you can see us. I had my camera with me, the video camera, but I was so mesmerized with my first UFO sighting that I decided to just enjoy the moment without even blinking. I feared that if I turned on the camera, I would miss the rest. Luckily, next to me was one of the speakers filming. His name is John Kelly from Canada. He's an expert on reverse speech. He filmed it with his professional equipment, and I will give him a witness statement 
for his website and he will give us a copy of that video so I can show it to you soon. Remember, I have seen questionable objects in the past, but since I cannot prove them, I won't admit them. But here, I can conclusively say, this was it. It almost felt like a personal graduation after so many decades researching the subject. Was I impressed? Yes, but not the way most of you would think. Why? Because deep inside, I knew they existed. This was simply personal confirmation. Apparently, another big ship was seen the day after, and James Gilliland filmed it. I will ask for a copy so I can show you too. Apparently, that one was huge also and changed colors. At any rate, on Saturday, James Gilliland asked me if I could be present during his broadcast of uh, his radio show called As You Wish. I was there with all of the speakers and filmed the entire broadcast. I will make the audio and video available to you in the next few days. Many of the speakers you have already seen, but there are two who will be with us shortly and they are outstanding. One of them is Mary Rutwell, and the other one is Lisa Renee. You will be blown away with these two ladies. How privileged was I to be surrounded by all of them? I'm participating on James' show as well. My good friend Paula Harris, and she seems to always do this, and I thank her. She did this at the International UFO Congress, where she allowed me to introduce myself to close to 1,000 people. And now she did the same at the East City Ranch. She asked me to come to the stage so I could introduce myself to the audience at the ranch. And that was very nice of you, Paula, once again. So whatever I can do to help you, please just let me know. Then on Sunday evening, I was invited to sit down with Dr. Brooks Agnew, where we recorded a very important oil spill interview that many of you have already heard. It's already making it around the world, and feedback is already pouring in. One person said, quote, This is by far one of the most logically connected, fact-based interviews I have heard to date. The sources are not anonymous, and the facts are verifiable, unquote. So this week, you are getting the equivalent of two shows. Dr. Agnew's interview was not available for download until today. You can see it next to this show. I also recorded this interview on video, and will make it available shortly. In addition to the video equipment, I have brought new audio recording equipment. However, I should have uh, read the instructions and it failed a bit. Nonetheless, I was able to patch audio from the videotapes and the interview came out very well. After the batteries were depleted, we decided to stay with Dr. Acton to talk about many other subjects. We stayed there for hours and I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. And last, but certainly not least, I wish I could name them all, but it would take a long time. Weeks before the event, many of you wrote to me saying you were going to be there. However, I had absolutely no idea there were going to be so many of you. I was glad I had a chance to chat with all of you. I have met a few of you before, but I met many more this time. And let me tell you, it was a highlight, a real pleasure, and an honor for me. I wish I could have spent more time with you, but these schedules were tight. We'll do this again. And even James' staff thanked me for bringing so many people. So I am the one thanking you for being there and for allowing me to spend some time with you. You have no idea how much this meant to me. I want to thank James Gilliland for having the vision to connect and help wake so many people up. This is definitely disclosure. We don't need the government to disclose for us. 
You're making it happen, James, and this is testimonial. You know me by now. I don't want to believe. I want to know. And like James Fox says, I know what I saw. It was Dr. Bruce Agnew's testimonial during our show, which I replayed during James Gilliland's show with me, that really convinced me to go. And then many of you wrote to me and compelled me. So I'm glad we got it done. I look forward to hopefully being there next year with all of you. And speaking of UFO sightings, I was going to refer you to the forum for the following, but I thought it was important enough to share with you here. Thanks to Ryan, one of our listeners who contacted me via Facebook this evening to share the following that comes directly from the China Daily newspaper. The title reads, Flight Diverted Delayed as UFO Detected Hovering. An unidentified flying object disrupted air traffic over Zhejiang Provincial Capital, Hangzhou, late on Wednesday, the municipal government said on Thursday. Xionshan Airport was closed after the UFO was detected at around 9 p.m., and some flights were rerouted to airports in the cities of Ningbo and Wuxi, said an airport spokesman who declined to be named. The airport had resumed operations, and more details will be released after an investigation, he said. A source with knowledge of the matter, however, told China Daily on Thursday that authorities had learned what the UFO was after an investigation. But it was not the proper time to publicly disclose the information because there was a military connection, he said, adding that an official explanation is expected to be given on Friday. Inbound flights were diverted to the nearby airport in Zhejiang province Ningbo and Yangshu province Wuxi. Outbound flights were delayed for three to four hours. A staff member at the airport's information desk said the airport had no idea how many flights were affected by the closure. At around 11 p.m. on Wednesday, a netizen wrote three entries announcing the airport's closure in his microblog at sina.com. They were all soon deleted. He posted an apology at midnight, saying the news had not been confirmed and asking those who had republished his earlier entries to delete them. Very interesting. I will continue following this story. I have also included a picture on this UFO at our forum. What a picture. Like I always say, my interaction with you does not end with the show. It only begins. Visit the forum and my Facebook page for updates and news. And now, get ready. Times are dire and the future belongs to those who prepare. Urban survival is the main topic tonight. The Gulf of Mexico oil disaster and guidance for those affected. What does the economy have in place for us? What if war with Iran begins? George Ewer from UrbanSurvival.com will discuss these and much more. If you want to believe the mainstream media, stop this audio now. If you want to know how to prepare, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Great music you hear right here on the Veritas show is supplied by the independent artists from Jamendo.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to our homepage, VeritasShow.com, click on the guest, look up the song, and download it. You can even buy the group's CDs, in many cases right there at Jamendo.com. 
Pai from UrbanSurvival.com, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. George Yor has been a Renaissance man type since he left the corporate world in 2002. After stints as a big city news director, vice president of an international airline, battery, state of charge, instrumentation, marketing guru, and software strategic planner. In addition to an MBA, George is equally comfortable on a tractor doing plumbing and wiring, flying airplanes, and writing about his long-term time love, something called long-wave economics. To say his outlook on the next few years is grim, understates the short-term outlook for bad, bad, and worse. But he shares with others, like Dr. Jack Lessinger, Swerk, the outlook for a much better world sometime after 2020, when, quote-unquote, responsible capitalism arrives and the end of little king capitalism. Me, 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 damn it. It's all about me. Capitalism dies off from the weight of its own compounding sins. His website, urbansurvival.com, provides daily business news, analysis, and financial market coverage from the long-wave economic perspective. Since 1996, the site has expressed the view that traditional constant expansion corporate business models would all collapse someday and that we'd eventually be forced to move toward green, sustainable business models, the new economics of responsible capitalism or perish. Hello, George, and thank you for being on Veritas. How are you? It is my pleasure to be here, Mel. I'm great. It's my pleasure. And let me just say that on this interview, I'm going to have to be on my feet. Because although George seriously looks at the overall financial picture and more, he has a terrific sense of humor that catches me off guard every so often. So I need to be prepared. George, many people who listen to this show know who you are, but there are others around the world who may not. So aside from the bio that I just read, tell us more about yourself and and, and what changed you to the point that it caused... uh, the creation of urban survival, peoplenomics, and all those great things you're doing these days? Well, it's, it, it's an interesting story, Mel. Um, I guess it really began with the typical midlife crisis. I was a very successful big city news director in Seattle. I enjoyed doing the news and chasing down the, the, the big name people to do the interviews, riding around on corporate jets and flying here and there to cover everything from the North Slope pipeline development to uh, mass murders to airline crashes, every politician of, of just about any stripe, including a couple of presidents. Um, after you get at that level of having access and entree, you sit back and you begin to say, what's the point here? Where, where is all this going? And about the time uh, I started a family and raised the family up and so forth, uh, I was you know, typically ensconced in suburbia, living happily ever after. But it wouldn't do anything for me. Uh, it wasn't getting me to the kind of place I really wanted to go. So I became single in the late 80s, bought a large 40-foot offshore sailboat, lived on a sailboat for 10 years, had the kids over every weekend, or almost every weekend, 
uh, taught the kids sailing and spent a lot of time doing just that, sailing Puget Sound and going up, uh, you know, in, inside islands, British Columbia, east side of Vancouver Island. And later on, I'd, I'd sail, uh, gosh, after 2001, sailed all the way south as far as San Diego. Um, during that time, a, a lot of things clicked for me. I had left uh, the... Um, news chasing business and I had gotten into management uh, both of a small regional uh, jet airline down in the Caribbean uh, as as well as doing some breakthrough work uh, with a company that went on to become Avaya which was taken private here a number of years ago but at its peak it was something like seven billion dollars worth on the New York Stock Exchange and, and to be around a company like that when there's all of 13 employees um, gives you a tremendous sense of empowerment. I can do this, I can do anything, uh, kind of thinking. And so one thing led to another, and I started researching economics, went back to school, picked up a bachelor's in business administration, then said, hey, this is really fun stuff, went on to do my master's. And it's about that time that I became very interested, and I'm not really sure why, uh, but I noticed that the economy going back all the way to the 1200s, uh, went through definite cycles, roughly 50 years. And this was all based uh, in part on the work of Nicholas Kondratiev, who was a Russian economist in about 1926 or so, who had told Joseph Stalin that, uh, basically, I got good news for you and bad news for you. The the good news from the then-Soviet perspective was that the West was going to have a terrible economic depression, and all kinds of people would be laid off. There would be huge human suffering, and a lot of people in the U.S. would be calling for socialist government. Uh, the bad news, though, which caused Stalin to send Nicholas Kondratiev off to the gulags, in Siberia was basically, he said, unfortunately, the West will make a dramatic comeback and be stronger than ever and will oppose the Soviet system, which uh, all came to pass, of course, through 1989 when the Soviet system imploded on itself because of all of the bureaucratic excess and overhead, or some would argue just a change of tactics. So that's really where where my background is. It, it it's in following the longer waves of of history, and and using using my uh, oh thirteen years of interviewing meaningful thought leaders, uh, everybody from Louis L'Amour, the Western writer, to uh, folks like. Um, Dr. Car uh, Paul Erdman, who wrote The Crash of 79, The Silver Bears, and things like that. Um, it got me really interested in history and really interested in economics. And it's, it's exciting as the Dickens today to be able to talk with current-day thought leaders in that whole area of study. Uh, in fact, I was just reading a book today about the, uh, the really bright times that are ahead for America when we transition from the me, me, me economy that we're in right now into the us, us, us economy, which will be bringing the next spurt of growth along around 2020 or so. Unfortunately, uh, history, and this, this really gets to the heart of uh, uh, a University of Washington professor emeritus of business, Dr. Jack Lessinger's works. Uh, Jack observes that uh, 
and you can find his books on Amazon, by the way, um, he observes that we go through these socioeconomic extremes uh, for 25 to 35, maybe even 40 years, will be in an economy that's all me, me, me. And we're just coming out of that now. After that, we go into an economy that's us, us, us. The problem is that the transition from the two states is often fraught with depression. You don't get a smooth transition from one mindset to another. And unfortunately, that's really where we are right now. We're, we're seeing the end of the me, me, me uh, economy. And along in its place will be the what's good for us, what's good for the planet kind of economy. The difference being, of course, that uh, uh, the colossus of industry uh, may be very good at turning on production and very good at making money, but it doesn't do really a lot for families and uh, personal achievement and satisfaction, things like that. So those are the extremes. You either you either get a lot of spiritual satisfaction or you get a lot of economic satisfaction. And as the economy goes in cycles, we waffle back and forth between the two, which is why we're having a manic time on Wall Street right now. We're in a major bear market that uh, began July of 2007 when the market was up around uh, 14,000 or so. It dropped down to 6,100, or 60, what was it, Mel? You remember that 60, oh, 66.27, that was it, right. in March of uh, 2009. And we've had a great big bounce, and everybody's going, oh, boy, we're out of the woods. Well, no. We actually face the prospect later on this year or sometime next year. Uh, the statistical possibility is that we could see the markets collapse into long periods of inactivity and illiquidity, which is why I have various uh, – what I'm willing to share with people is I, I don't mind sharing any aspect of what I'm investing in and and not saying that it's right for everyone. It just happens to be right for me, and I don't mind talking about it, and I'm not selling anything. And that's what I want. I want this show to be – a, a barometer to the average yeah. person who's out there. And I wasn't too creative this time around. I usually give a, a nice title to a show. And although I gave a nice title, it's Urban Survival, just like the name of your website, because it's very important to do that these days. But have we reached the precipice like 1929? Or are we there, but have been putting some makeup, if you will, with the bailouts and the funny money that's surrounding us all the time now? Uh, the, the, the first one is there is some recent work that has started showing up in non-quantitative economics that suggests that the, uh, the depression period that countries go through as they transition from me-me to us-us kind of, of economies uh, is really a, a perhaps decade or even longer than a decade event. Um, Lessinger points this out in his work, but others are starting to also notice that the U.S. Depression did not really begin in 1929, September 3rd, when the market hit uh, 381.9 or something like that. Really, the Depression of the 1930s had its grassroots in the market break of 1921-22. And, and so we can almost look at that as parallel to the market break that took place in the United States 
when the internet bubble collapsed, or at least started to collapse. Late nineties. Yeah, late nineties, or or technically, I guess from you know the spring of of two thousand is when it really got underway, uh, and most people didn't realize it was the onset of the of a an economic depression. Even at that point, because everything was uh, investus interruptus with September of uh, 2001 and the Twin Towers episode, there there are some of a conspiratorial bent who might argue that that's a little too convenient, that timing, to see the market on the verge of recognizing that we're starting a Great Depression. And, and what happened was the... the um, Operation Iraqi Freedom and so on and so forth, uh, the, the combined wheeling out of uh, terrorism as a global uh, agenda for the United States in many ways served the same economic function that the Works Progress Administration and the Civilian Conservation Corps served when the first depression got rolling up in 1932-33. There there are many differences, and some of them are really interesting when you go into them. Uh, I could probably bore you with uh, some statistics about bank closures, um, but we've had as many branches have closed down now, due to banking consolidations and takeovers, we've had as much turnover in the banking uh, sector almost as we had in like the first year of the Great Depression from 1929 to about 1930, mid-30, maybe even 31. The, the difference is that we've, we've got some soft landing stuff built in which was enacted following the original depression or the the big depression of the 1930s. Um, when a bank failed in 1929 and 1930, as many did, um, the, the, the immediate impact on each average person in America was on the order of, in constant dollars, about $463. Um, Today, we we have a higher cost, maybe $620 uh, per person in the country, but, but that cost is spread out over time, and we don't have the big hit to economic confidence as a result of the failing banking system. So whereas in 19, let's say 1931, if your bank down the street failed, uh, you were simply SOL, uh, sorry, out of luck, or however else you want to take that one. <laughs> and mm-hmm. And and what would happen is you'd you'd, you'd get um, suddenly destitute and unable to meet your mortgage payment. Nowadays, we've we've not only got FDIC and other banks being shotgun married uh, off to keep banks from causing personal economic hardship and rather spreading it out over the whole of society. A good thing, by the way, and uh, regardless of your politics, it it has actually prevented us from falling into a much faster economic depression. And the thinking is, and you, you can see it in policy actions, that if we can spread the pain out over a long enough period of time, we won't have to go down into that really ugly uh, 25, 30% kind of unemployment that we had in many parts of the country during the first depression. Unfortunately, we're already there in places like Detroit, 
some of the cities in California. Uh, I'm sure you're aware that something like 60, Nevada. Yeah, Nevada. I was going to say about 65 percent of the homes in Nevada right now are upside down. I mean, those are scary numbers, Mel. So, um, yeah, I, it, so, sometimes I wake up in the morning at 4.30 when I come out to my office here and start writing, um, and I think to myself, oh, do I want to get up and write today? And the answer isn't uh, I want to get up and write because I have anything particularly ingenious or, or burning to say, but it's almost like going to a NASCAR race. It You, you go because it's so amazing to watch the thing circle in on itself with the occasional wreck. And, uh, I mean, that's why people go to stock car races, right, to watch the wrecks. They don't go for, you know, safe driving and how to turn left lessons. They go because of the, right. you know, they, they do. I mean, they, they, they just call it what it is. People have this um, sense of the macabre or... or uh, Morbid. Mor- yeah, morbidity. That's it. Well, I, have, I guess I have this financial sense of morbidity. But I'm also a contrarian. And a contrarian is somebody who who looks at these terrible things going on in the economy and goes, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, how can I make money at this? And it's easy. I mean, it's really, really easy to make money in a bear market. There are funds out there, um, uh, tracking funds, like uh, I'm particularly fond of the financial sector tracking funds. Uh, There's one that's a triple bear fund. In other words, if the financial sector goes down 3%, the triple bear fund will will increase in value 9%. 9%, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's tremendous leverage. And so if somebody's willing to play the leverage game, I mean, it can be incredibly, incredibly profitable. Now, my, my personal account is only up something like 25% for the year, but... Well, let me ask you, let, let me interrupt you for one second, George. Sure. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I'm thinking about the shorting and, and those types of funds. Doesn't this magnify sometimes if we're going down, if the economy is, is getting worse and worse, and you add all the people who are shorting, doesn't that magnify the situation somewhat? I don't think so any more than you could argue that people who were investing for the long term were blowing up the bubble. I mean... Yeah, I suppose you might be able to argue that. On the other hand, um, I look at the small number of dollars that I have invested in the market, and I compare that to the number that these uh, high-frequency uh, trader outfits. You know, you know when you when you go make a trade, like I trade with an online stockbroker. Um, the online stockbrokers, most of them, between you and the real free market, are front-running your trades by a few milliseconds using high-frequency trading analytics. In other words, when I push the buy 400 shares of FAZ or whatever I happen to be buying in a particular day, there's a uh, roughly 100 millisecond maybe delay while my order is... Uh, matched up with other orders inside the firm, and if it looks like it's going to tick up, then these high-frequency algorithms 
kick in. So they they, they only make maybe a, a fraction of a cent per share, but they do it day in, day out, trade after trade after trade. And I don't think that, that uh, short selling, and this was something that came up in the 30s too. I mean, people said, oh, it's all because of the bears, the short sellers. No, the short the short sellers are the other side of the trade. They're simply they're simply people that look at the economy and have a different belief set than the ebullient uh, ebullient bear uh, bulls. I mean, you know, somebody who looks at this at this economy and thinks that you know, gosh, everything is fine. We're in green shoots. Why everything's recovering? Uh, I wrote a piece that'll be on my UrbanSurvival.com site tomorrow morning, uh, this afternoon, when the Federal Reserve came out with its uh, consumer debt number. And, and maybe a few words about that is in order. Uh, the Federal Reserve, which basically rents our money to us in a sense, um, they come out with something called the Consumer Credit Report once a month, and it shows whether consumers are borrowing more or less than the previous month. And in the numbers out today, the Federal Reserve reports that the um, the rate revolving of, is down. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm saying revolving debt is down. Yeah, revolving debt is going down, and what that means is is that the economy continues to auger in. But it's it's it even though the the uh, the consumer debt number is uh, shrinking, which might be in some ways a good thing. It's really very bad for business. And so, uh, am I a bad guy for being a bear and saying, you know, people aren't buying as much stuff, which means that company earnings will necessarily be coming down. And when earnings come down, doesn't that drive down the price of these companies? Now, George didn't drive down the price of the companies. What drove down the price of the companies is, you know, hundreds of thousands of people losing their homes. And we've had 10 million jobs. Maybe maybe eight million are gone permanently, according to some recent reports. That'll never come back to America. We've allowed outsourcing to basically eat our guts out. And so, am I a bad guy for recognizing that and bidding prices accordingly, or am I a genius? I mean, if I make money, arguably, I'm a bad guy because I'm making money on the market going down. But on the other side, I'm a realist because the the uh, the not only not only is consumer credit down 4.5 percent, but what most people don't realize is that M1, the amount of currency in circulation, measured by the Fed's H6 report, which is the money stock report, uh, there's actually seven percent more money in circulation now than there was a year ago. I'm sorry, yeah, seven percent more now than there was a year ago. So the purchasing power of your money has been watered down 7% and still we have things looking terrible. So, so I mean, it's, it's not a pretty picture, Mel, and, and it's perfectly okay to make money on the market going down. Is it, is it moral and ethical for you know, people to go around and buy up discounted real estate and turn it into rentals? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, if you can get a deal on real estate, I think it's early. I think we've got two more years and another further 50% decline downward to come in real estate. But, oh, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's nuts. And I I don't think we're anywhere near the end of it yet. Uh, The reason we're not near the end of it yet is the Fed has not got 
the one thing that the Obama administration has not really been able to uh, to gin up is a good jobs program. Uh, we we had a lot of talk about stimulus. We've tried to save some jobs at Chrysler. We've tried to ch- save some jobs at GM. Ford uh, was able to save itself, but that hasn't really fundamentally changed the the underlying construct. The underlying construct is in order for consumer confidence to return, people have to have a clear vision of the future. We have to have infrastructure that we can grow into seamlessly and painlessly, and we're not making much progress on those fronts. And at the same time, we have a horrific debt load, which could be building you know, the next versions of Grand Coulee and the Tennessee Valley Authority, the Rural Electrification Agency, you know, the REA, all those things that built the infrastructure in the first depression that allowed the United States to be a world powerhouse from then all the way until after the Korean War. And then we had a guy named Eisenhower in office who had the vision for the interstate highway project expansions that became the interstate freeway system that built the trucking industry, that built even more automobiles and so on and so forth. We got some real serious problems, Mel. And the the problem is that um, we need energy in independence, and we we don't have a national strategy to get there quickly. As a result, we're held hostage to certain conditions in the Middle East and Gulf of Mexico. And what can I tell you? I mean, there's very short term until we figure out how to bring jobs back to America. We have our hands full, and I don't see a lot of improvement yet. And if we have, what is it, 12 to $13 trillion, that's the total debt of the United States. And if you were to sell every asset of every citizen, it would amount to about 7 to $8 trillion. That leaves yeah, about 5 or $6 trillion. So how are we ever going to pay this? Oh, we're not. We're going to do what every other country has done. We're going to inflate our way out of it. Uh, there's a really good historical example of how this works when the Weimar Republic, which was the, the caretaker government in Germany after World War II, made a right. conscious decision to uh, skate on war reparations. And what they did is they deliberately printed more money than they actually should have, and the result was a very short-term two- to three-year period of hyperinflation, where literally you could take a, a wheelbarrow full of Deutschmarks in order to buy a meal, and people across the border, Alsace-Lorraine and so forth, you know, they, they, they were just shocked to see what was going on with the German money. And yet, from a public policy standpoint, fact of the matter is that vicious inflations are manageable and are of a much shorter duration, generally, than protracted monetary deflation. Because, because you see, what happens in a deflation is you have an incentive to save and postpone purchasing. Um, if you knew tomorrow, like I know, for example, that real estate is going to drop to approximately, uh, let's say, one-half of its current valuations, or one-half of its current price. And let's say the wife and I have $10,000 in the bank, and we're going to buy a rental house. Do we buy the rental house today when our $10,000 is 10%? 
Or do we wait two years and buy take the same $10,000, which should be retaining its purchasing power because we're in a deflationary environment, and buy the thing when all of a sudden it's 50000 and our 10000 represents a 20% down payment instead of a 10% down payment, and we can then cash flow the thing immediately. See, that's what's, that's what's bad about a deflation. In a deflation, you don't have an incentive to spend. You have an incentive to save. And we're flipping over into that, and the Fed hasn't been able to stop it. And until they get people to go into that spend now before prices go up, then we're going to be stuck where we are in deflation and following on with that, lower stock prices, which means guys like me will be able to maybe buy a rental house someday. <laughs> and by the way, I wanted to ask you before we started the the uh, the show, uh, Cliff Hyde, your friend, our mutual friend, he's a fixture on the show. How and when did you and Cliff converge and, and started working, working together? <laughs> this is a fun story. Uh, I was writing Urban Survival, living on my sailboat, in uh, San Francisco, and I was uh, the vice president of admissions for a private uh, technical college down in Fremont in uh, uh, mid-2001. And I got this email from a fellow in about May or so, and he said, okay, uh, got screwy theory 153 here. Uh, And he explained how the future could be divined from reading the internet electronically, in other words, not reading it yourself, but extracting as he does using the WebBot technology, uh, shifts in language so that you could take a snapshot of the language one month and come back and take a snapshot of the language and use it a, a month later. And the way the language contexts had changed would give you some real hints as as to what people are anticipating down at an archetype level. And so, uh, He and I exchanged notes, emails for probably a couple of weeks, and then I think it was July or so of 2001, uh, I stuck my neck out, which I seem to do a fair bit of, and said, okay, here's this this guy up in the Northwest, and uh, let's just call him a think tank, and he's got this way of looking at the world, and it says things are going to forever change inside the next 40 to 45 to 90 days, and it will have aspects of military and accident. In fact, you can even see where we had um, some clouds drawn, uh, data clouds over Las Vegas and the Philippines. And at that very time, little did we know, that was when the uh, Al-Qaeda bombers were hanging out in Las Vegas, uh, having their last hurrah before 9-11. So, uh, as soon as I woke up, my wife and I were living at uh, uh, on our sailboat at Oyster Point Marina down in South San Francisco uh, near the airport, and uh, I woke up to watch CNN. We had, you know, satellite TV on the boat and such, and uh, uh, woke up to watch <laughs> the, the Twin Towers event, and I'm going, oh, my God, this guy Cliff nailed it. And I didn't realize how big the nails were. I mean, I you know I'm thinking like eight penny nail, right? These were like thirty two penny 
galvanized spikes because when he was talking about it would change forever how we live, I didn't know. I mean, no one could have conceived of terahertz wave scanners of of people at airports and and searches by TSA and all the other things that have changed. They've really become uh, fixtures in the American way of life nowadays. And we're about to come across another uh, tipping point like that, um, November of this year. I guess we can get into that a little bit later. Sure. So anyway, one thing led to another, and then Cliff followed up with attack on House or Assembly in advance of the anthrax attack, and uh, numerous other forecasts. I mean, the, the the number of forecast events that he's gotten right, um, especially on the really big stuff. I mean, some of the small stuff, yeah, I could see somebody could quibble and go, well, okay, yeah, that was right. But on the other hand, when when we nail some of the big stuff, like uh, we nailed, uh, I, I say we because it was on my site, uh, he does all the work and I get to take some of the credit. It's, it's a great arrangement. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really great, right? Uh, but but um, we nailed things like uh, the October 2008 financial uh, smackdown. Uh, we nailed the China quake in two, that March of 2008. Was it March or May? I guess it was May. Anyway, but, but that was called the wedding quake. And two, two weeks after the event, we're still kind of scratching our heads going, gee, was it just because it was close to the Jenna Bush or um, you know the Bush family wedding? Or what was that about? And then those pictures came out of China with all those people in front of that devastated church where everybody seemed to go to get their pictures taken. And there were all those wedding quake pictures. And we're going, oh, damn, that's what that meant. Okay. And there were other things. There was uh, uh, the Columbia disaster got that right, unfortunately. The, the, the only the only bad part about working closely with Cliff uh, is we have many, many long conversations that necessarily never see the light of day, although we are going to be doing a video shortly. Um, he's just finished up uh, putting some outriggers on his Umiak, which is a, a, a soft-sided uh, uh, West Coast and Native people fishing boat, basically. And so we're going to go out in the Umiak uh, here in a couple of three weeks and, and shoot a video and just talk about this. I mean, you know, we, we, what's really amazing about the Internet is we've never met face-to-face. -face. We've been working on this project since 2001. I've been up to Seattle couple of times on business, and uh, we've, we've just never scheduled the time, and he's always either been hip-deep in processing or I've been on a short string for time, and uh, we're actually scheduling time to go out and chill out, float around in the UMIAC, do a little bit of sailing, because I, I love sailing. Cliffs is, a uh, besides being a, a sequel uh, guru and, you know, the expert of all the calculus predicates that go behind SQL. Uh, he's also a very good boat right. So we're going to go out and float around. If, if his boat right skills are any good, we'll, we'll both recover from that. And uh, Well, I knew that. I didn't want to make it public, and now you did. I was going to say that two days ago, Cliff knew that I was going to interview you, and he said, please be gentle to my friend, George Ure. <laughs> well, what the heck? No, he's coming to sail with me in the Umiak, so go ahead and do it. <laughs> You know, we're, we're both a little bit crazy about water, but, but I don't know if you, you, you know this, but there are some people that literally are addicted to 
negative ions. Uh, there's a wonderful book. You, you can find it sometimes in bookshops for like three bucks. Uh, one of the guys I interviewed, in fact, back in my news directoring days, wrote a book uh, called The Ion Effect. And the ion effect is what happens uh, is that the atmosphere uh, is endowed with lots of negative ions of oxygen. And specifically what puts negative ions in the air is lightning storms, rain, being around cresting waves uh, around the ocean and so forth. And, 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 and people like me and Cliff are just like amped whenever we're around rain, lightning. In fact, in my office, I run a small uh, negative ion generator all the time simply because it is, it is like uh, walking into a shower, the mental alertness you get from these things. It's really cool when you tune into them. The, the other side of it is something called positive ions. And uh, I have a very hard time. And, and, t- and tell the audience that negative ions is actually a good thing, not a negative thing. Yeah, negative ions are, po- are good for you. Uh, they, they, they are mentally uplifting. They add a lot of clarity to your thinking. And it, if, if you're the kind of person who needs a shower in the morning to really wake up, uh, believe me, negative ion generators are the hot ticket. The positive ions are, are really bad for you. And if, if you want some examples of, of where positive ions occur, um, poorly constructed um, heating, ventilation, air conditioning systems in, in certain buildings uh, cause a lot of negative, uh, positive ions to positive. be released into the air. Uh, certain kinds of carpet, uh, especially plastic-type carpets in the wintertime, uh, all of these contribute to something called sick building syndrome, and you can actually look that up and see it. And, and, and in certain parts of the world, uh, winds uh, that come down from hot, dry places cause an increase in suicide rates, depression, uh, assaults, violent crime. And those winds are, in Greece, it's the Meltemi. In Algeria and North Africa, it's the Scirocco. And in Southern California, those are the Santa Ana winds. Yeah. And see, most people don't know that. I mean, but, but that's what Cliff and I enjoy because we're both relatively well-read old farts. You know, we're, we're both... Uh, I'm not at Social Security yet, neither is he, but we're kind of, you know, ambling up that way. You know, we're in the over 50 crowd, and so we've had a lot of time to sit, read, digest, and think about stuff. And we're a lot of people our age just, you know, t- turned on their TV 20 years ago and never got out of the chair. Um, neither one of us does that. Uh, we're both like perpetual students. And if I'm not surrounded by at least 500 books, I feel, you know, almost unfulfilled. How can a person claim to be intellectually alive unless they're able to read a tremendous amount of material and keep adding to their information base? You're both uh, intellectual sponges. Uh, Or vegetables. (laughs) Yeah, we we enjoy learning. I mean, you know... um, when, when I was a, a vice president of admissions for a, a private college or two or three, um, I always told people, you know, when, when I was considering if they should go to the college or not, uh, are you really serious about becoming a lifetime learner? Somebody who's going to go all the way through the next X number of years of your life <clears throat> soaking up information. Because if you make a commitment to 
keep gathering information. You will you cannot help but but be more successful than people who do not put themselves on an intellectual training program, which is what new information does. Um, information to us is like the fertilizer. You can't have new ideas, make new connections in your brain unless you put some fertilizer in there every single day. And I've even got it down to a, a I won't say a, a, a regimen, but I try to spend half an hour a day listening to some kind of loud rock and roll music because I happen to like loud rock and roll. But the reason I listen to loud rock and roll is I realize that I have to feed the right side of the brain, which is the poetry, music, yada, yada, yada side. And at the same time, I'll usually spend an hour or two a day reading an economic textbook, rereading Lessinger right now. But uh, gosh, anything in the library from you know machine shop practices uh, of the U.S. Navy foundryman in 1943 to uh, something as current as software, um, you know, design patterns in software engineering. So it, it, it's pretty much whatever whatever we can find, we, we tend to wolf down and read. And when we get bored with new stuff, then we go back to some of the basics, like, you know, my, my dog-eared copy of accounting principles is still around someplace, even though I've tried to simplify my life to minimize the amount of accounting I have to do. Um, and, and that's, I guess, where... Um, effective living comes to play, all of this knowledge people get can be leveraged into a really neat lifestyle, provided that you're willing to turn off the TV and go consciously think about what you're putting in your head. Well, that's why I call it the subliminal tube. He really hypnotizes you. But let's let's get to the meat of things, and we cannot ignore the elephant in the living room, uh, George, the BP oil spill. This week, I did an interview with uh, Dr. Brooks Agnew called Ecological, Economic, and Societal Implications of the Oil Spill. Let me expand on the economic and societal implications since I'm sure you're analyzing this very carefully. If the oil volcano, as Cliff calls it, can be stopped anytime soon, and BP claims they'll be capping it by the end of July or July 27th to be specific, paint for us a scenario of how life in the United States will look like, especially to people living in Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas. Ain't going to like it. Just flat ass ain't going to like it at all, Mel. Uh, I have a subscriber newsletter called Peopleomics that's 40 bucks a year. And my readers were asking me the same question a month ago. Okay, paint the picture. What's going to happen? What happens is, if the... BP guys are not able to do an injection of junk and get the thing shut off by, say, the middle of August, there will be an increasing hue and cry from all over the place, and I mean worldwide, because this thing is going to start impacting Europe, the fishing grounds off Europe by this fall, uh, and, and the economic devastation could, you know, well, not could, it will become planetary in scale. And so the the very first thing that will happen is we will start seeing additional tar balls washing up on the beach in places like Texas. We'll see more than the initial reported four people, I think it is now dead, from respiratory complications from fumes in the area. We don't know if that's hydrogen sulfide or what. 
the continuing spill means that sooner or later a hurricane is likely to pick up at least some uh, level of pollution and push it up into the southeast. And it could be any place from the Rio Grande Valley in Mexico on the south all the way over to um, coming ashore Miami or Tampa, St. Pete area. We just don't know. We don't know if it's going to pick up oil or if the oil is simply going to start migrating because of prevailing winds, any of that stuff. But at some point, probably, I'm guessing September, October, we'll start seeing people voluntarily leaving Florida and heading north and trying to find a different way to live away from the oil smell. Now, in Cliff's work, we've got 40 degrees, or roughly the Mason-Dixon line, uh, as as a safe zone. Now, it doesn't mean it'll be unsafe south of there. It just means we don't know where south of there will be safe. Um, my wife and I live on a 30-acre ranch in East Texas. We're 526 miles from the spill, 185 miles from the Gulf Coast at the closest point. We think we'll be okay, but we are willing to sell our property, which is a very well-equipped, you know, solar backup power and a well and goat herd and machine shop and wood shop and everything else. We're willing to sell our home because we're not especially attached to the South, but then again, we're not much attached to anything. And so uh, we're willing to fall back to a position in the Pacific Northwest because we have a lot of family up in that area. Or alternatively, we may go to Colorado where one of Elaine's boys is, and that would put us about equidistant between the kids. There are going to be, uh, if the thing does not stop by, say, middle of August, we will we expect or I expect uh, to start seeing the mass migration, and I'm I'm hearing informally that it's already close to impossible to reserve a U-Haul to leave Florida right now because everything is getting booked up. A friend of mine who's a physician, uh, due to the nature of his practice, he can practice anywhere and just fly and do whatever he needs to do. Uh, moved back to Chicago this week from living down at uh, South Beach in Miami. And he was very pleased to be in Chicago. And even there, he is looking at putting together a bug-out vehicle, which makes a lot of sense. The reason it makes a lot of sense is that when we start seeing the large-scale evacuation of the Gulf Coast, even if it's only 100 miles inland, you're talking at that point on the order of perhaps 5 to 10 million people being relocated north. That has tremendous economic implications. The first is it could collapse the economic system. The specific mechanism of collapse is as follows. Let's say that you've got 10 million people, and underneath it, that's uh, maybe 2.5 million homes. 2.5 million homes at an average price of uh, maybe 200000 per mortgage. You can pencil out the numbers on that, and they get to be pretty horrific. That's a lot of mortgages for people to be walking away from. And even though they may be bundled with mortgages from outside of the collapse zone, 
what's going to happen to the valuation of those securities, uh, those mortgage uh, packages, the, the CMOs, the collateralized mortgage obligations that are funding everything from college endowments to pension funds and so forth. So you've got that. The next thing you've got is you have all the commercial real estate that would then collapse with that. Figure there's probably a dollar-for-dollar ratio, I mean, just to throw a dart at the wall. You've got all those factories, all those hotels, all that tourism infrastructure. Uh, When the smell of oil becomes apparent in Florida, will people be going to places like Orlando to visit the amusement parks? Don't know. I kind of sort of doubt it. And if they do, will there be residents who are willing to put up with the smells for more than a couple of weeks at a time? I don't know the answer. And, so, and George, yeah. a, a lot of people don't know that Florida is the number one destination in the world. In the world and for it has tourism, a, yeah. yeah. For tourism. And it has, uh, what, about 75 million visitors every year, 50 Seven billion dollars in revenue. I mean, yeah. that alone kills the whole economy. We well, didn't kill the whole economy. Remember, the the U.S. GDP is running about thirteen billion. I'm sorry, thirteen trillion. Well, I meant Florida. Yeah, you know, it kills Florida for sure. And but but you start adding it all up. You you look at the Obama administration is going in. They're going to, uh, regardless of what happens, they're going to make sure that there is a continued ban on drilling until there can be serious review of what's going on in the Gulf. That makes sense. Don't want to have another one of these going on. This one is horrible enough and may be a planet killer by itself. Um, you have to look at what's the cost of all the commercial real estate, the lost jobs. And in a lost job economy, strangely enough, there may be a long-term benefit to abandoning a good chunk of the South because all those people going north are going to need housing, going to need shopping, going to need, going to need, right? So maybe, but balance, more than balancing that off, we have the collapse of confidence in the debt structures that will accompany it. So can we avoid a financial panic this fall and make it all the way till Christmas without it? Mm, kind of doubtful. Now, there, there, is, there is one way out. And the one way out, I hate to say it, is to start another war. Because if we had uh, a major war breakout, and you talked to Cliff, you know what's in the data. Uh, sure. If we had a major war breakout, that would certainly be a major distraction and an excuse for martial law and so forth. So is that all in the cards for November when we hit our big tipping point? Don't know, but to give you an idea of the scale, the uh, 9-11 tipping point uh, in 2001 was a matter of three to four hours, uh, and then about a week or so as we worked through the uh, the emotional pain of losing 2,700-odd people at the Twin Towers. This event that's coming up in November of this year is not going to be a four-and-a-half-hour event, It is, and, and it's not going to be in the U.S. It's going to start in the U.S., and it's going to be an event lasting four days, maybe as many as 96 hours total. And then the wailing and gnashing of teeth about all the dead, injured, missing, whatever, is going to carry us through into early to mid-2011. 
Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but I just can't think of very many things that could cause that kind of emotional release. What could have 100, 200, 300 times the impact of 9-11? Uh, global thermonuclear war? Yeah, that's a possibility. And, and is there a migration path? Let's say, for example, that either this weekend or in following weeks, uh, Israel finally says, okay, can't wait any longer, must go deal with Iran's nuclear uh, uh, weapons program. Uh, whether, whether they have a weapons program, I think, is, is almost beyond uh, debate. I think they're, you know, they, they be, have to be fools not to be if you have all that uranium sitting around and you have designs on being a regional power. I mean, that's just how that stuff works. So uh, I can't picture a happy ending to November. Maybe, maybe what will come instead will be a massive gas bubble release due to an earthquake, and that in turn will set off New Madrid, and and New Madrid quake then takes out oh much of the southeast infrastructure as well as possibly causing subsidence of some number of feet, changing the course of the Mississippi. And I think there's a Hopi prophecy about uh, the Great Lakes draining out. So I'm not sure that's any happier than global thermonuclear war. Not, not to say that it's going to happen, but linguistically it's a high probability. And at the beginning of the show, you mentioned that 9-11 was a distraction for what could have been a depression when the dot-com bubble burst. It was a bait-and-switch. Yes, a bait-and-switch, exactly. We were focusing on that area, and then all of a sudden, now it's more important to focus on you know, the people who passed away and, and so on, and now the wars. Could the same thing be happening? And let me go back one moment to the Weimar Republic. Now, and, and, and the short answer is yes, by the way. Yes, it, it may be that this is simply the, the, uh, the offspring of 9-11 brought forward, and we could be in a replay of 9-11 uh, at the moment. So, yeah, this could be the bait and switch. And many people say, you know, don't compare 9-11 to this oil spill. But you start looking at the similarities of the, of the shorting, of the, you know, all the companies dumping, Goldman Sachs dumping 44%, Wachovia 97%, the CEO of uh, BP dumping one-third of his shares and paying his mansion in Kent. A lot of similarities between 9-11. Oh, and the double insurance policy on the, on the Transocean oil platform. Do you see a lot of these similarities materializing once again? <laughs> A person would have to be a damn fool not to. The problem, right. the problem is, who's who benefits? It always comes down to Kwe bono. You know who right. who's making the bucks on this stuff? Not you and me. And the interesting thing is how it all plays out, so that so that there's a national level of distraction. It, you, you know what what ends up happening because of the BP thing? Uh, we could have just just to give you an idea. When we get into the the runaway part of this fall, when people are smelling oil and starting to get sick on a, on a wine spread basis down in Florida and the Gulf and so forth, uh, what could very easily happen would be um, we could see contracts for commodities go through force majeure where people who 
put money in good faith into commodity contracts will be told just plain old, so sorry, you lose. And there are provisions for force majeure or what happens in the event of war kinds of things. And certainly this is that kind of an event. Um, There may be um, extreme legal responses which would nullify and, and not be acceptable in peacetime terms, but because we're facing an environmental emergency, you know, we, we, may, be, we may have that shoved down our throat that that's the excuse for BP uh, not doing right by people. I'm sure you've seen how the, the fishermen are, are waiting for their checks. They're, they're finding their checks are being delayed and so forth. And uh, gosh, uh, BP put up $20 billion, which is, uh, sorry, that's not a pot to piss in compared to, you know, losing maybe as much as a trillion dollars of productivity from the economy. Look at tourism, look at fishing, look at real estate, look at manufacturing, look at all the military infrastructure that just goes away is something like Pensacola Naval Operations. You know, the big naval air station, Pensacola, huge training facility. And then there's Fort Benning, Georgia, and how how far up will evacuations possibly take us down the road? Not saying that they will, but as I point out to uh, folks in this diaspora handbook that I've done, you got to always take the worst case, build a plan to deal with the worst case, then and only then can you step back and say, okay, if anything better happens, then I'm all that much further ahead. So, for example, if if you said, what can an average person who lives in Florida do right now today? I'd say, "Uh, I don't know, Mel. Gee, uh, maybe take a little vacation with a family, go up north someplace, buy a little ten to $20,000 piece of property out in the middle of nowhere up in Michigan or Wisconsin, park uh, uh, maybe a, a little trailer on it, um, get a little, you know, hit. Start scouting when you can. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and not only that, but, you know, uh, Elaine and I are thinking through the possibility of getting driver's licenses and uh, having our local um, you know, we we lived on a sailboat, so we've had uh, a private mailbox before in the Seattle area. Uh, we thought real seriously on, on our trip coming up when we go up to the northwest to, you know, visit Cliff and visit kids and so on and so forth, getting driver's licenses. And even so far as getting a car registered in Washington, because look, if you're, if you're in an evacuation situation, think through how government's going to try and manage it. They're going to look at cars on the road. Car comes toward you, and it's from Florida. You go over this way and follow that car over there because you're all going down to a resettlement to the camps. On the other hand, if if you're coming out of Florida and it says New York and you look like a stockbroker, uh, you, you, what are you going to do? You're going to you're going to send the guy to a resettlement camp. He says, "Look, here's my driver's right. license. Here's my car. I'm just trying to get back home, Bubba. I got I got me a job. I got to be at work day after tomorrow." Oh well, good point. Hmm. You know, so it, it, and and so it doesn't take a lot of of brain power to kind of look ahead and say, "Okay, what's the sorting going to be, and how do I?" avoid getting sorted into that recycled useless eater department coming out of the south without a job or a pot to piss in right exactly and 
this is exactly what I want to do in segment two of this show. We're giving people, this is not fear-mongering, folks. No, no, no. It's, it's thinking ahead, Mel. Exactly. And weeks ago, we started talking about the possibilities of, of relocations. And many people thought, oh, you're engaging in conspiracy theory. That is not the case anymore. I can tell you because every couple of days, I'm getting email from people who are relocating and leaving. And this is a good time to not leave, but at least what George is saying, start scouting for property. And that, what a great idea. So if you can't afford it, buy a car or get a license. Because when this happens, and it I hate to use the proverbial hits, the fan, then you're going to be out of luck when you have millions of people on the road. Just go back to 2005 uh, uh, during Katrina. What happened? The government could not handle it. And let me just say something before we get into go into break, uh, George. I received some information that uh, Rupert Murdoch, George Soros, and Bill Gates heavily invested in the company that manufactures Corexit, which is the dispersant being used. And folks, if you remember last year, Rupert Murdoch, through his mother, has a foundation that invested heavily in the swine flu vaccine. Oh, yes. Almost as if uh, control population, or as Bill Gates calls it, planned parenthood. Could this be one of the variables of this false flag event, George? Oh, sure. No question about it, Mel. I guess that's what we need to talk about in segment two. Absolutely. Tell us once again how to get in touch with your great work. Uh, well, I don't know about the great work. I, I think that's always yet to be written. <laughs> the, the stuff I've done so far is at urbansurvival.com, and then I do in-depth reports for subscribers over at peoplenomics.com. And uh, always willing to share. I mean, ideas are supposed to be free, and this is a free country. Enjoy it while it is. We have a lot more to talk about. We have plenty of questions from the audience and a lot of material to cover. This is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
This is Catherine Austin Fitz, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. 